part of the reason we also need to take moments like these to learn about each other is because usually the only time we're learning about a group such as the Sikh community is during moments of immense trauma. That is a moment for the Sikh community to be able to navigate their own trauma, not have to build awareness and put their own trauma to the side. That is why I think conversations such as these are so important. If we can start to learn about each other in moments like these, then we can be more present for each other when we are in pain. Chapman University's Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences and Past Forward present Engaging the World, Leading the Conversation on Ethnic Studies. In this series, we explore ethnicity through race, religion, indigeneity, and cultural identity, examining how the stories of these communities are told and their histories are taught, if at all. Through art, education, scholarship, and activism, our guests fight to have their voices heard, their heritage celebrated, and their contributions to the fabric of American society recognized. In this episode, we connect with educator and activist Manpreet Kalra, exploring her experience as a Punjabi Sikh American and the power of community and the power of faith as she helps us better understand Sikhi. Here is Manpreet Kalra. I think of Sikhi, Sikhism being the what I believe is the Anglo-Christian way, Judeo-Christian way of thinking about faith names. But as a Sikh, we call what many perceive as Sikhism, Sikhi. To me, Sikhi is about ever learning. It's about being vulnerable. It's about being present. And it's also equally about being fierce and fierce in the wake of injustice. It's about equity, striving for equity. It's about being present for one another. And so when I think about my practice uh, as a Sikh, I think about all the ways those intersect with my values as a person. To me, Sikhi is really rooted in seeing the humanity in one another. And that's what I would consider the foundations of Sikh, being a Sikh, Sikhism, or Sikhi. Now, it is I'm trying to think now. So this is one of my, my I, I want to learn more, but this is one of my improvisational questions. <laughs> uh is there uh, is there a connection to uh, a deity, or is it more of a philosophy and a way of life? Sikhism is a way of life. It's a philosophy. Uh, there is, you know, one of the things I think is really interesting is, as an adult, you reflect a lot on things that shape your identity, and for me. There was a moment at which I realized that my understanding of my own spiritual religious values was really actually shaped by the way that Sikh scriptures, Sikh traditions have been translated into English. As a kid, 
you go to Khalsa school um, or Sunday school uh, at the local Gurgada on Sundays. And um, that was my experience at least. And that was my way of uh, my mom and dad were both very active. My mom was a Khalsa school teacher most of my childhood. And uh, a lot of the way that Sikh youth still continue to learn about Sikhi is through these translations into English. And what many people don't realize is actually the first English translation of Sikh scriptures was done by a colonizing body, right? This was done by someone who came in with the colonizing hat and, uh, that's why so much of the translation, right? We have to remember that for many youth living in the diaspora, we, some families have done a fantastic job. I was really lucky that my parents did a fantastic job of connecting me to the language of my ancestors, Punjabi, but our day-to-day activities happen in English. We're in school, we're talking in English. I'm having this conversation right here with you right now in English. And you learn to, if that's the language that you're learning to think about complex ideas in, it's easier to learn and connect with your spiritual identity than through the English translations. And the reality is that there is so much nuance uh, in six scriptures. And going back a little bit, you know, keeping in mind that because the original translation was done by someone from a Judeo-Christian background, there's a lot of principles in the translation of six scriptures that uh, translate into concepts that actually don't exist in Sikhi. Hmm. And so, for example, your original question about, is there a deity? You know, the translation will say, use the term God. There'll be, it was, it's very gendered, but truly six scriptures aren't gendered. They're formless. And we think about the equivalence of the God, the God equivalent for six is truly this concept of light, this concept of force. To me, I've always thought of it as light and um, presence and recognizing that that light and that presence exists in all of us, in everything that surrounds us. And So there isn't necessarily a deity. Um, There's also not necessarily a traditional concept of God. There's Vahegru, and Vahegru for us is that presence, that light, that that feeling of interconnectedness. And that to me is what's so beautiful, right? Sikhi is, um, six scriptures are written poetically. And though that Poetry, you know, when you read poetry or I read poetry, poetry is written in a way that allows us to self-reflect. It allows us to also be open to interpretation. And I think that's what makes Sikhi, Sikh values so uh, universal in many ways because it's open to that interpretation. and mu- music is a, a part of it as well, too, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And and so, you know, a lot of the poetry is written in a way that 
can be sung. It's musical by composition. And currently when we listen to the concept of um, sung Sikh scriptures and Sikh prayers is called Kirtan. And Kirtan in you know, most Kirtan that we think about that you'll find online typically and that we learn as children is in is done using a vaja, which is a harmonium, and a tabla, which is a pair of um, drums that you sit down and you play. But traditionally, uh, kirtan was done and the way it was written, the dogs that uh, associate with many of the prayers um, is for string instruments. And so we're seeing this movement within the Sikh community that I think is so brilliant and beautiful of reclaiming that origin story of string instruments. The thing that I think is really important is remembering that to me personally, that is what has kept me so um, eternally connected to my Sikh identity is the creativity, the beauty, and the connectedness that exists within the way that we practice our faith. I'm curious, this, everything that you're talking about, I know in the, in the sixties and from what little I understand that there was a a movement of Westerners converting. (laughs) Um, It seems like that's the draw that that (laughs) beauty, that poetry, that light, that connectivity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it makes sense. It's, it's, um, I don't know what the convert rate is now. I mean, it definitely was at that time and it's specifically here in California and and in Southern California. Mm -hmm. But um, is that something that, is there that reach to want to bring others into a fold or is it a a practice and Mm -hmm. a faith of the people? I think to understand any faith, you have to understand the moment of time in which that faith originated. What was the historical context? What was the environment that gave birth to um, any sort of spiritual practice? And for Sikhi, uh, it really came out at a time when there was a lot of internal conflict between different religions and castes. So I will say that within Sikhi, there's a strong belief against any form of forced conversions. Part of that is because that was what we, what was happening at the time. There was a lot of forced assimilation and conversion from one faith to another. And so that's something that, you know, strongly uh, condemned in Sikh practices. Now, if someone chooses to, that is their autonomy. They have the autonomy to uh, choose to be part of the religious fact- practice, adopt the religious practice, and doing so respectfully is very much key. With that said, I don't think I can honestly speak to what the draw has been for um, six who have entered the Sikh philosophy and practice. I was born into Sikhi. It was part of my identity growing up. Both of my parents um, practiced Sikhi. They, it was a very important part of the identity that I grew up in. You know, I think identity is a very important aspect to talk about and think about and reflect on. 
because for me, I consider my, growing up, I would always consider myself sick American. I still consider myself sick American, but I also consider, I do think acknowledging my identity as a Punjabi Sikh American is really important uh, because it is a nod to the homeland that was stripped away from my ancestors um, when, as the British left India and uh, which resulted in the largest um, and bloodiest mass migration uh, in history. So with the division of Punjab. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your family uh, Mm -hmm. leaving Mm -hmm. and uh, the circumstances of of which they left and then Mm -hmm. came here um, and the the life that they established and and, and what that experience was of establishing that life here in in the States. Uh, I would say that most people of Punjabi origin and I'm not going to say Punjabi Sikh, I'm going to say just Punjabi origin, have and were, their ancestors were, grandparents, I mean, my grandparents, almost all, at least three out of four of them, uh, were forced to migrate as children, uh, leaving their homeland that was that's now in Pakistan, And so most people who hold Punjabi as part of their identity have some family members, ancestors that were forced to migrate and can share some story of a great aunt that was lost or a, um, you know, grandfather figure, whatnot. Most six, um, you know, thinking about the intersections of identity, we first had partition. And then for many six who were still recovering from the trauma of partition were then uh, faced by the 84 genocide against six. And uh, for my parents, right, I am the granddaughter of survivors of partition I am the daughter of survivors, daughter and granddaughter of survivors of genocide. Um, I was I was born after eighty four, um, but knowing the my my parent my dad was in Delhi, my grandparents were in Delhi when um, eighty four happened. They were really badly hit. Um, my mom was uh, in. Uh, UP near Agra, and she was one of the few sick families in her area. And she will still very, she's, I've been lucky that my parents don't shy away from talking about trauma and history. So I was exposed to it at a very young age, these stories. Um, And she will tell you that, you know, they didn't know if they would survive and they, they barely did. Um, they had to build their whole lives again from scratch. And, you know, that recognizing generations of trauma, we can't ignore those because they really do shape our identities and also how we navigate the world and see the world and think about our own positionality in the world. 
And so for me personally, I, I mean, I think that it is incredibly valid to say that for my parents, they, they, you know, there's this concept of what does it mean to go home and the concept of a homeland. And I've written about this in the past is it's really hard to think of a homeland as a country that wanted your people to be completely extinct. And um, for my parents, it was, you know, they came, my, my parents came on the backs of education. Uh, my dad had, had gotten a job in the U.S. and that's what brought them here. But it was, of course, part, and there's a lot of privilege with that. I, that and I think it's important for me to acknowledge that I, there is layers of privilege that come with having that opportunity and having the opportunities I have had because of my parents being able to come and know that they have a job in hand when they do arrive, but their disconnect from the pain of knowing that they, their lives are under threat in a country that under a um, government that is constantly othering marginalized communities was absolutely an influencing point for their reason to leave and come here. You were raised here in, in California, correct? In, uh, yes, Northern California. So I have a son, he's almost three years old and he just started preschool. Mm -hmm. And I watch him interact with other children. Mm -hmm. And to him, Children are all children. They're friends. There's no concept of other. Everything is the same. We're all, you know, at that age. And I'm wondering if you remember your experience of when you started to discover that difference, the, mm. the, the, the separation, the, the uniqueness of your experience in this environment of California. Mm. I would argue that children start picking up uh, differences much earlier than we think. Um, there's some fantastic research, and I'm not an expert on it, but there's some fantastic research on how early children start picking up concepts such as race. And, you know, I, my journey is interesting in the sense that I grew up in California at Brown skin. I was, a, I'm a woman. Um, I don't tie a turban, uh, growing up in California with brown skin. Um, you know, I, I went to a predominantly, uh, Hispanic school. So I was able to blend in a little bit more, but it became very obvious the moment we had parent teacher conferences or any sort of linguistic, ch uh, exchange. Right. So the idea of assimilating was never even an option because I knew I was different. I looked different. My family dynamics were different. And it didn't dawn on me until I was in preschool in Oregon. My family moved briefly to Oregon. We were um, at, right out, in a suburb outside of Portland. And my mom tells the story of picking me up from school one day and um, 
I was in tears. And uh, another classmate of mine, mind you, this is preschool, had told me that I, my skin was dirty and that I didn't wash my skin and that I was very obviously different than everyone else. Apparently when my mom picked me up, I'm as an adult, I do not remember this, but she, she's told me the story to me many times. And I remember tidbits. Like I remember the interaction with the student. I don't remember as much the way I was able to describe it to my mom, but she remembers it vividly. And, um, I looked up to her and this is how she tells me. I looked up to her and I said, what is wrong with me? Why do I look this way? And she didn't understand. What do you mean? What's wrong with you? I said, no, look at me. What's wrong with me? And she still didn't understand. I said, look at the color of my skin. It's so dark. And I was in preschool. So I think that children do recognize race. I think they do recognize difference. It's just that the way that they express it can be different depend, and it comes out in little ways. So I knew I was different. I remember, you know, that was probably the start and I'm sure there was incidents before that, but that's what I remember as an adult. And it went through the, re- I, I moved back to California. I was the only kid with really long hair. I had a really, you know, I still have very long hair, but I think my hair spinned out a little bit over the years. Um, it's still long, but thinner. I used to have much thicker hair, <laughs> a thick braid. And um, my mom would put oil in my hair. So it was shiny as well. Um, and I know that there was a, I was probably, first, second grade, there was a case of lice found in the school. And there's, you know, the letter that goes out and all the kids stopped sitting next to me. I wasn't the one with lice. I can tell you that. But all those kids stopped sitting next to me and they would call me lice girl. I got called mustache girl. I got called many things. But what got me through it, and I think that that's the thing that's important for anyone who's navigating a marginalized identity is you have to find your community. My parents surrounded me with love. They surrounded me with community of people who look the same way. So I didn't have to navigate every single one of my experiences. Sure. In class cool. Maybe I did, but outside of school, I wasn't navigating every one of my experiences as feeling othered. So I can also feel a sense of self and welcome and being. How important is it to you to share these stories of your faith, of your your people, traditions, um, to build awareness and understanding and, and empathy? I think it's incredibly important. And I'll tell you why. I think we have to normalize that there are more traditions and experiences than those of dominant cultures and traditions and religions. Because as a global community, we can only grow and see each other's full humanity when we recognize that there is more that 
exists than just the traditions we have been exposed to as individuals. I think it goes both ways, right? A six, it's also for any marginalized group, not just six, any marginalized good group, it's very easy to look just inward and surround yourself with just people who look like you because you feel this sense of belonging. But if we become so inward facing, we're not able to build those connections um, and really be present for others, which I think is part and parcel to the Sikh faith. Um, I, I do feel that part of the reason we also need to take moments like these to learn about each other is because usually the only time we're learning about a group that is, such as the Sikh community is during moments of immense trauma when the Sikh community is in the news because of some sort of shooting at a Gurdwara or a hate crime. And uh, that is a moment for the Sikh community to be able to navigate their own trauma, not have to build awareness and put their own trauma to the side. And that is why I think conversations such as these are so important is if we can start to learn about each other in moments like these, then we can be more present for each other when we are in pain. That's very well said. Um, the other side of that question is how exhausting is it to have to define yourself, to explain why you practice why you practice, and mm. to have to answer questions like these mm -hmm. in a podcast to have to focus on one aspect of this multifaceted person that you are. Because mm. we yeah. haven't even talked about any of your work. <laughs> uh, we haven't talked about anything that, you know, that will all come out in the bio, but, you know, this conversation is on a very narrow part of, of all of the aspects of who you are. Yeah, yeah. I think it's very... This in itself is a great example of how we think about the other, right? Me as a small business owner, me as a woman, those are kind of things where you're like, oh yeah, there's others I can figure that out with. But there's the unique intersections of my identity, which when you add it with what is very obviously different, which is my spiritual practice, um, the fact that I have long hair, I don't drink, I don't, you know, like all these different ways that I practice my sicky and sick practice. My husband wears a turban, has a long beard. Um, it's easy to hone in on that one part of my identity because it's so different when you think of it in the context of what we think is normal, right? And I say that in air quotes because I think that that in itself is what, um, is so interesting is we often have these conversations because we're trying to understand concepts that feel different to us in the confines of what we consider to be parameters of normality. And that in itself can be often problematic. These conversations, of course, can be exhausting. I think they are for anyone if you have to focus only on one part of your identity but I think they're important to be had. And I appreciate having them 
not in a moment when I'm trying to navigate and be present for my own community, but being able to have these conversations at a time when I think that we genuinely can sit and have an honest conversation. And I encourage us to have these conversations, not just with people who, you know, there's the, the oftentimes the conversations are shaped also around the concept of, well, you're the other. Explain to me all the ways that, you know, explain whatever this is to me. And recognizing that there's a lot of power in that. There's a power differential that exists. There's a, there's something to be said about giving me the agency or giving anyone the agency to describe how they identify themselves on their own is in itself incredibly powerful as well. Throughout this series, I've asked this question. Uh, it may come across as cheesy. I apologize if no. it does, but it just it just felt like an interesting question to ask uh, as I connect with all of these different groups. So what does the term American dream mean <laughs> to you or make you feel when you hear it? And what does the American dream look like for you? I giggle at this question. Because <laughs> it has that element of like, uh, you know, general. It, it has the element that everyone should have an American dream to, in order to be American. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's this big concept that, it you know, is. and it, and it, and it, and it definitely is a privileged concept, um, yeah. you know, historically. Um, so I'm just curious because as an American, you know, there is this this philosophy of like, well, why here? Why now? Mm -hmm. and, and what can we do with this thing that we have that we're, we're fighting to make better? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that the concept of there being an American dream and you needing to have one in order to be seen as American or patriotic or whatnot is in itself problematic. I think that there's also this notion that there's only one form of an American dream. And what I find personally problematic with that phrasing, um, and this is not on you, this is just the concept as a whole, is uh, that the way that we think about American dream, we're saying put aside all those unique intersections of your identity and focus on this one part of your identity. And that's all that you are. You're nothing else. You're just American. And that to me is the epitome of forced assimilation. And so when I think about the concept of an American dream, I think it's a antiquated concept because I think that there's indiv as individuals, all of whom may be residing in what we call, you know, America, remembering that there, this is a, stolen land um, of indigenous people. I think that it's important to recognize that each individual has different dreams and those dreams don't have to be static. They don't have to be defined as this one ideal. And they, there is such beauty in the nuance of our experiences as humans. And so for me, when I think of my dreams, I think my dreams are ever-changing. 
My dreams are a product of my environment. They're a product of my stage of life. They're a product of my experiences. And no one should be expected to have one dream that they stick to for their whole life. Because what we're failing in in that expectation, how we're failing the individual is we're not accounting for personal growth and evolution. And as people, we're constantly learning. We're constantly exposed to new ideas. And I hope we are. And those don't have to come in. I am soliciting more information. It, it comes in just these some these ways that just through our lived experiences, through a single conversation with someone that unexpectedly may occur, we're growing. Our our minds are shifting. I don't think there's any one ideal that we should all be striving for. And there's this concept of America being a melting pot, and I think that we need to move away from considering America a melting pot because right. that is in, in itself forced assimilation. Yeah. America is a mosaic of mm-hmm. beautiful, unique identities. And to honor that mosaic, we have to recognize that there's so many dreams and those shift and change and evolve. And my my dream right now, and I think will be for a while, <laughs> is to see just a lot more humility, empathy, and just genuine care for one another. If you would like to continue the conversation, visit chapman.edu slash Wilkinson to hear all of the lectures from this series. To access recommended books from our guests for further learning and for more socially conscious content, visit us at pastforward.org or follow us at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you podcast.